This podcast was originally the audio for a work of the same name for the Nearly On Red YouTube channel, found at youtube.com slash c slash nearly on red. Though not intended to be a standalone podcast, viewers frequently consume my videos for their audio content only, so I have duplicated my work in this format to hopefully save people a step. A full list of content and platforms can be found at nearlyonred.com or the short link nearly.red, N-E-A-R-L-Y dot R-E-D. Enjoy! Hi guys, welcome to the Not Quite Daily Show. Today talking about episode 8 of Made in Abyss. We actually had a bunch of interesting developments this time. Leader has a name, Liza actually has eyes, and Ozen is actually not a monster. Not quite. But, even though this episode was full of lots of interesting information, a few interesting developments, I have a few problems with it overall. So before we actually run the title and get on with our normal analysis, there's a few things I want to say. It turns out I was wrong about the whole survival training being skipped. I didn't really expect them to compress 10 days down into 10 minutes, however. I mean that literally. Look, here it is exactly at the 10 minute mark, and Reg and Rico are returning to the Seeker camp. In fact, if you cut out Ozen's flashbacks and the opening, the entire survival training sequence is on screen for less than five minutes. And honestly, the first half of this episode felt unnecessary. There's no advancement of goal, conflict, character, or theme that couldn't have been accomplished with a 30 second montage while the old man and Ozen talk over it. Technically, there is some rule building in the way of the creatures, but that's just detailing out the world. I, I suspect any creatures could have worked. Unless the whole bit about the clean water becomes important later, it probably really didn't matter what the details of this were. This whole episode feels to me like it could have been appended onto the last episode if it had just been a bit longer. Which is kind of a shame, because it actually does have some good bits. You have Maruk's very heartfelt goodbye, Ozen's memory of Rico's birth, Liza's thoughts on sacrifice, and what I think is perhaps the funniest bit in the show so far. <laughs> The survival training dilutes all that, which kind of annoys me. But more troubling is what the inclusion of this must mean for the direction of the show. The only real purpose of this bit is to make the idea of Reg and Rico surviving in the Abyss a little bit more believable. Which means Reg and Rico are going to survive in the Abyss. Okay? Like, a lot of tension goes out of the series with this. I don't think anyone believed they would just fail the training and Ozen sends them back to the surface, better luck next time, right? It's also unrealistic that they would just die right here in episode 8. So, to me at least, it made more sense that they would try to survive, but have something unexpected happen. So they neither succeed nor fail, but are unable to go back to the Seeker camp. Then, the question of whether or not they can survive in the Abyss alone continues to hang over their heads. I mean, that was a tension in the show from the very first few minutes. I think now some of the mystery of that has been dispelled. It also, because of its positioning, kind of robs us of natural character development. Reg and Rico should each be reacting to the encounter we just had with Ozen last episode. Instead, they seem totally unaffected. So much so that we might as well have skipped from the end of episode 6 after they wake up to the beginning of this episode where Ozen is explaining the rules of survival training. It doesn't appear anything about episode 7 and that tense encounter with Ozen has changed them. Rico is still knowledgeable but reckless, 
and Reg is still very capable but very unsure. Rico's new zombie status hasn't changed anything about their plans, or their preparations, or their goals at all. It might as well have not happened. Everything actually important about this episode is in that second half, which makes me think the entire survival training was just there to space out Ozen's flashbacks. Ozen's memories of Liza and her warnings about the lower layers are the things of substance in this episode. They're the things that Reg and Rico need to know to go forward, and they're the things that we, the audience, need to know in order to understand Liza and Ozen. Gatekeeping this information until they overcome some arbitrary obstacle just seems contrived. I mean, you can't reasonably expect us to believe that surviving for a week and a half in a relatively tame part of the second level would suddenly convince a grizzled veteran like Ozen that they could make it all the way down on their own. And even if you frame it as Ozen being worried they'd die if they didn't go through some sort of wake-up call, wouldn't her beating the crap out of Reg serve as that wake-up call? I mean, this makes me suspect that just the way the episode breaks lined up, they didn't have enough content to make a whole episode here. They wanted to end with Reg and Rico looking down to the third lair, but they didn't have enough time to put all of Ozen's memories and flashbacks into the last episode, so we instead get a half episode full of meaningless content that accidentally undermines the tension of the show. I mean, that's actually way worse than just wasting our time. So yeah, I'm being a little bit of a hater. This is not really a review show, it's an analysis show, so please forgive me. But this seemed like a real break in quality. It's not the only complaint I even have, which we'll get to that when we talk about character and world building, and theme. This episode just disappointed me, I guess. I guess because for the first time I can really feel the hand of the writer guiding the story, rather than the story simply being the natural outcome of mixing this set of circumstances with this set of characters. Anyway, this doesn't ruin the show or anything, but I feel like this really was a departure in the quality of it up to this point. And I really think it's just because of the way the episodes broke that they went and did this, and I really wish they hadn't. That is enough ranting for one day. Let's go ahead and roll the title, get on to our goals and conflicts, talk a little bit about the characterizations that we went through, a little bit of the world building that we got, and we do actually hit every single one of our major theme categories in this episode as well. Despite having two-thirds of an episode to work with at best, we actually got a pretty decent amount of movement on our goals and conflicts. Goal-wise, the big Conquer Abyss goal gets the very obvious progress of going to the third lair. That's always been the most visible sign of progression throughout this series. Those of you keeping score at home probably realize that taking eight episodes to get through two layers means either we don't get to the bottom of the abyss, or our pace changes rather dramatically at some point in the near future. Rico's big guiding goal of finding Liza gets even more help this time, because while Ozen said she was alive last time, it kind of sounded like an empty assurance. Ozen explaining the way your sense of time gets manipulated by the Abyss, and her memories that show us that Liza knew very well she was going into the Abyss not to return, gives a little more weight to that assurance. Ozen outright says, don't you get the feeling there's a very good chance that she's alive and well? Which is by no means confirmation, but it's definitely supposed to make us feel more hopeful about Liza actually being alive at the end of this. I will say that us actually seeing her face and eyes this episode actually makes it less likely she'll be alive at the end. Usually if you don't show someone's face all the way through in a series, it's because you're waiting until they actually come into the picture to do that reveal. Doing it early like this makes me suspect that we will never get that reveal because she won't be around for it. 
but that's kind of speculation. I do just want to point out that that goal seems to get a little more credence this time as well. Leader's goal of protecting the children, and especially Rico, that I suggested many, many episodes ago, turns out to be perhaps not my imagination at all. It turns out that Leader was Liza's apprentice, and something she says suggests that she is in fact having him look out for her. This is connected somewhat to Ozen's unknown goal that I mentioned a couple episodes ago. Ozen had some goal, it just wasn't quite clear to us what it was. At this point, after this episode, we now understand. She really was looking out for Rico to come, and Liza had asked her to do that, and Liza had also asked her to reveal the truth of her birth to her. This actually, to me, lends a little more credence to the leader is testing us theory that Reg and Rico had. Because now that we've seen Ozen also test them, the two of them apparently were both asked by Liza to look out for Rico and perhaps to speed her along her way. The fact that they both did something kind of testing to her makes both of their tests a little more believable to me. That actually was their motivation. Ozen's various actions over the last couple episodes at least make a little more sense now that we actually understand what her goal was all along. I think now that we actually know what Ozen's unknown goal is, it is both defined and actually completed. I think we can probably take that off the board. At the same time, we start to get a sense of what Liza's unknown goal is, or unknown goals, as it probably will turn out. I've suggested two so far based on this episode. One is that she wants to see the bottom of the abyss. Surprising no one, I realize, but the way Ozen says it makes you know that Liza knows she's going on a one-way journey, and Ozen's not letting her pretend like it doesn't factor in her decision to leave. But right alongside it, it turns out she has a goal of letting Rico choose her own path. I guess she feels as such a influential person, as such a famous person, that her own gravity would simply catch Rico in its wake, and Rico would not be able to choose whether she wanted to go into the abyss or not, because it's clear the abyss and its hold on Liza is absolute. So while it may not be a completely selfless decision on Liza's part to go into the abyss, it's not totally for Rico's benefit, it does at least somewhat play into her decision making. So she does want Rico to have the opportunity to make her own way, and perhaps expressing that to the people around her, Leader, Habo, Ozen, has helped inform the way they've been acting all along. I'm not totally sure Rico's entirely acting on her own here, in the sense that she's choosing this because it's the thing she wants more than anything, so it's hard to say when or if this goal can be completed or changed, but regardless of that, I do believe this is something Liza wanted. We'll wait and see how much of Rico's decision-making seems like it's fulfilling this goal of hers or not. As far as conflicts go, last time we added survival training to the board, and I guess that is completed. I don't know how it's training, if there's no one out there actually teaching you anything, and you only pick up the skills you already had, but uh, whatever. We'll take it off the board. Our conflict about the warning about Ozen that Habo gave us, I guess we can count as completed. It turned out to be a threat to their psyche and their confidence only. Despite her kind of brutish and clumsy way of trying to uh, help them out, Ozen ultimately turns out to be an ally. She's sending them on their way with new knowledge, with new warnings, with a new sense of themselves, and in a way, kind of a new sense of hope. At least as far as what may have happened to Liza in the past and the present. So I think that conflict comes off the board also. Um, the risk of madness, we learn now, could actually be a sense of time madness. Your sense of time apparently gets really distorted, especially in the fifth layer, it seems. Something else Ozen says in this even suggests to me that it might not just be in your mind. Like, there actually might be some sort of time dilation going on as you get down there. 
Like really, if there is time dilation that gets stronger as you go down, that could explain some of the symptoms that we call the Curse of the Abyss already. Maybe not all of it, but certainly that would affect you if it's kind of a gradual change, you know? So the loss of the notebook. If you remember, Rico lost her little notebook that she takes notes in during the episode with the incinerator. At the time, I thought the loss of the information in that notebook might eventually adversely affect their ability to make good decisions. They would be missing information they needed about the Abyss to inform which way they went or how they reacted to certain situations. After this episode, and in fact our little bit in the survival training, I realized Rico actually knows quite a lot about the Abyss. She actually remembers quite a lot. So the loss of information may not matter. There may not be a conflict at all. What actually may be a conflict is the fact that there is a notebook somewhere in the Abyss that has all the information about Reg in it. Remember, Reg is a very valuable relic or collection of relics, and it's largely a secret what he is. Now there's that notebook lying around that has all that detailed information in it, and the fact that they don't know its whereabouts or its fate kind of becomes a new conflict hanging over their heads. Like I thought it was the loss of information that made that significant, but now I'm thinking it might just be the fact that it outs Reg. So in addition to new interpretations of some conflicts, we have a couple of new conflicts outright. The first is the mystery of the letter that was slipped in with Liza's notes. The one that says, at the netherworld's bottom, I'll be waiting. The fact that it's written on an indestructible relic ought to give us pause, now that we know that it's not from Liza. And Ozen's description of the writing suggests to me either someone who is very old wrote this, or some kind of child in a society that's very old. Either way, some unknown player has sent a message along with Liza's information, knowing that it would eventually get to the surface. We don't know what that means yet. That is a new tension for the series. The other one is the other White Whistles. Now we already kind of knew they might come into the show at some point, but this expressly tells us that there are three of them probably in the fifth lair, gives us information about them, and Ozen herself basically gives a straight up warning about one of them in particular, Bandaruda. I suspect this conflict was not included for idle chatter. They definitely will cross paths. So to move on to characterizations, we finally kind of got a complete picture of Ozen after this episode. It was the one thing this episode really did very well. Ozen continues to be a little bit inhuman, perhaps a little bit outside normal society, normal human behavior. There's even a scene where we see her straighten up from her kind of hunched posture in a completely inhuman way. And I think this is just to help remind us that she walks a little bit apart from the rest of humanity. She herself even references how you have to be a little bit off to be a white whistle to be someone who wants to basically live in the abyss. We'd seen before this episode her having a few flashbacks about Liza and kind of staring off wistfully into the past. She definitely gets a lot more of that this time around. It's clear that she's actually kind of sentimental about the whole thing, but she's not going to show that to anyone else. The audience is the only one that gets to see her having these memories, saying some things out loud, basically talking to Liza in her memory. Now, despite her lack of social graces, Ozen turns out to be a pretty good ally. Turns out she's actually pretty loyal, it seems. No matter how she felt about what Liza asked of her, she did perform it. She did send Rico on. She did give her the information that Liza wanted her to. Not so sure she did it in the most humane and understanding way she could have, but she is at least true to herself. I get the feeling Ozen is Ozen basically all the time. Ironically, she actually becomes the one voice of hope in this whole thing for Reg and Rico because she gives them reasons to believe in Liza and all this information that they would 
would never have had otherwise. It's quite the turnaround from the borderline monster that was abusing them last time to the person sending them on their way armed with some things they need to actually make it to their goals. I personally have enjoyed Ozen quite a bit in the series, and this really completes my picture of her. Perhaps one of my favorite bits in the exploration of Ozen's character was when she was thinking back to Rico's birth, talking out loud to herself about everything Liza's gone through, and then realizing Rico is alive. And then we cut to the present, where Ozen's resting her hand on the cursed repelling vessel, and she says, just relax, I have a very strong sense of duty. I think she's kind of saying this to the Liza that lives in her mind. She's not saying it to reassure or to fool Reg or Rico or anything like that. It's like she's reiterating her own promise. And this is why I actually believe everything she said up to this point. So Maruk once again gets to play hostess. I'm sure he's very pleased. He also gets to stand in as Ozen's other half. I talked before about how the two of them seem to be very complimentary, be a lot of things that are opposites, almost like they're two halves of the same character. And he basically stands in for Ozen when it comes to say goodbye. He has this very heartfelt, very nicely done goodbye where he admits that he's hoping kind of that they just give up and come back. And he knows it's selfish and he doesn't mind admitting it. Ozen, meanwhile, is not even there to say goodbye. In fact, she's up having more reminiscing about Liza and kind of admits that she would have kept Reg and Rico around a little bit longer just to make it bring back more memories of Liza. So it's obviously Ozen's very capable of missing people and wanting to say goodbye, but just doesn't do that. And that's kind of the role Maruk is filling here. I do suspect we've probably seen the end of Maruk and Ozen. Maybe not, but I do get the feeling this goodbye was for real. I think the inclusion of the other cave raiders there were purely to highlight the fact that Ozen wasn't there um, because none of them got enough development to really matter. Finally, we got to fill in our picture of Liza a little more as well. It's very reassuring to know that she does have eyes. <laughs> I guess it surprises no one that she turns out to be very pretty. Obviously the kind of person who would make a very good folk hero. She actually turns out to be a little bit younger at the time that she leaves than I suspected. So I'm guessing she really is a true prodigy as far as the cave rating goes. We can tell from Ozen's little succession of memories that Liza really was kind of impulsive and reckless, just like Rico. And I get the feeling that her marriage to Torka and deciding to have Rico and doing all that was just a manifestation of how impulsive she was. Ozen even references the fact that Liza had finally sort of mellowed out when all these bad things happened to her. So I'm guessing all of what we saw there was Liza kind of coming of age and maturing. She really was just so far ahead of everybody else that she was a white whistle just right on the cusp of adulthood. The things that do happen to her at this point where Torka dies, where Rico is stillborn, when Rico is actually brought back to life all seem to be very sobering to her. She's very introspective when she's talking to Ozen. She talks about no matter what relic or what else I offer as payment, it's never enough. You feel the weight of what she has gone through is finally caught up to her. The reality of being a mother and how much that conflicts with her identity as a cave raider. The two things are really not compatible. And so in her mind, she has kind of a terrible choice. Rico is precious to her, but so is the Abyss. The Abyss and chasing after that is kind of part of her identity. It's part of who she is. The selflessness required to be a full-time mother does not play well with that, you know? It's hard yet to guess if her rationale about allowing Rico to choose her own path is genuine, if it's not just a way she's justifying the fact that she really just wants to go back into the abyss. Hopefully we'll kind of sort that out over time. 
But I will say this was one of the problems I had with this episode. I mean, Rico is very aware that Liza is her mother. She's well aware that she has this famous, famous cave raider for a mother and has no father. And she's in an orphanage which has the orphans go on cave raiding. So if Liza actually wanted her to choose her own path, and she apparently is keeping Rico a secret from the wider world, why let Rico know all that? Like, aren't you clouding her decision-making? Like, aren't you making it inevitable that she chooses the Abyss? Like, I can't decide if this is a flaw in Liza's logic, a, a characterization of hers, or just a flaw in the way this episode is written. Giving Rico the chance to choose her own life is admirable, I think, but the situation she put her in all but makes it inevitable that Rico will follow her sooner or later. And it turns out that she follows her sooner, sooner than is wise. In fact, Rico is really put very much at risk by this decision of Liza's, which is completely at odds with this idea that Rico is precious to her. So I don't know if this is a problem with Liza, if with her own maturity, or it's just a contrivance of the show to overlook this. I liked much better my speculation that Liza went after some way to extend Rico's life. That would be both fulfilling her role as mother and her desire to plunge the depths of the abyss. Instead, I feel like we almost have weak justification for her running out on her child. We don't know yet, because we don't quite have a good full picture of Liza, but I'm definitely bothered by this, which I'm sure you can tell. So world building, leader has a name. I don't know why we felt the need to keep that a secret at all, but hey, he's got a name. I think it's interesting to see that young him has the same sort of unamused expression as older him does, so I guess that's just his look. <laughs> Liza being Rico's mother turns out to be kind of a secret. That does explain a lot of things. It explains why she was at the orphanage. It would explain why during the Resurrection Festival, people weren't making a big deal about uh, Rico. If you remember, I kind of wondered back then, like, why aren't you celebrating or bringing attention to the daughter of this hero? And it turns out it's because nobody knows she had a daughter. Granted, Habo knows, and all the kids know, and the director knows, and Leader knows, and Ozen knew, so I'm not really sure how this is a secret, because everyone we've met knows, but maybe just no one else knows. Either way, some other things kind of make a little more sense now. We do get another bit with Reg's helmet lighting up when he puts it on. Both times when this has happened has been on the second layer after he puts the helmet on and while he's going toward the seeker camp. None of that may actually matter, but that was the conditions both times. I noticed this time that it looks kind of like a compass or a little bit, you know, not exactly, but it definitely has bearings marked on it. Anyway, it's obviously just meant to remind us that this is still a mystery. We don't know what it means yet. We learned that Liza's pickaxe is called Blaze Reap, that is in fact has infinite gunpowder inside of it, whatever that ends up meaning. It is also the thing that is in the wrapped package that we see in the credits. I had referenced that before, that we didn't know what that was, and we'll probably find out. Now we know, it's them carrying around Liza's pickaxe. Ozen says that she'll teach them how to use it, even suggests it as a substitute for incinerator. But of course she also says that it misfires and probably can only be used so many more times. I don't know how that makes it a substitute for incinerator, but there it is. We don't see any of this happen, we don't know how it works. That obviously all happened off screen, but we can certainly expect to see that in the future. Mentioned this already, but just the fact that your sense of time can be affected by being in the abyss, 
I'm sure that will become important later. When Ozen sits down to impart a bunch of knowledge to them there at the end, we learn the names of the three white whistles that she expects are actually below them, perhaps on the fifth layer. Now we learned already that Ozen's name was Ozen the Unmovable, the Unmovable Sovereign, but turns out that whole Sovereign bit is a pattern for all the white whistles. In fact, her name being almost the same thing twice is not that exceptional. Liza the Annihilator turns out to be the Sovereign of Annihilation. One of these guys, Strajo, or however that was pronounced, he's Strajo the Mysterious, the Sovereign of Mystery. I get the feeling at some point in the past there was a Sovereign of Redundancy. The fact that we now have names for all these guys, the fact that their naming scheme actually seems to be part and parcel of the whole White Whistle package is all interesting information and all makes the whole thing seem a little more filled out. We learn there's some sort of device for crossing the Sea of Corpses, the fifth layer's sea they put in uh, air quotes. Clearly it won't actually be like an ocean, I'm sure we could have all assumed that, but it'll be interesting to see what that actually means. And we've hinted at it and kind of believed it before, but it's confirmed for us that the White Whistles do activate a certain class of relics. That at least tells me that that's not a one-to-one -one pairing like I was wondering last time. Perhaps the Whistles themselves are matched individually to the people who can use them, and then that unlocks a whole realm of relics that then only White Whistles can use, but any White Whistle could use them. Then there's an obscure reference to a mysterious ring on the seventh level. No other information is given for that. I think it's just to put it in our minds for now. Um, I'll speculate on that more later. To bring up yet another problem with this episode for me that goes under world building, Ozen sits down and gives this whole tell-all to Reg and Rico, tells them all kinds of things they shouldn't know since they're not white whistles, but it seems nothing is ever said about Reg. We talked before that Ozen must know about Reg. She's seen him in the past. She knew something about him and Liza. She knew all about him, was not surprised by him when he showed up. And yet here we are in this tell-all moment and she leaves all that out? I find this to be a contrivance. I find this to be something that wouldn't actually happen in reality if she's really telling him all this information. Why would she leave this out? I think this is purely to keep us, the audience, still unsure about what's going on with Reg. I feel like this is the writers bending the character to make her do what they need her to do for the sake of the story the way they want to tell it. I mean, why would you impart all the secret knowledge? Why would you have no trouble telling Rico the truth about her circumstance and just hold back this information about Reg? It doesn't make sense with Ozen's character. It doesn't make sense with what we've seen her do. It only makes sense as a way to continue to hide that information from the audience. And if you're going to do that, why even hint to us that Ozen knows more about Reg in the first place? You're just frustrating us. Ugh. Anyway, now we're going to move into theme. Last time we combined all of our themes into four super categories, and I've basically left this up there the same way it was. I'll probably keep doing that for the immediate future to help remind us which pre-existing themes went with which category. We'll add more if we actually end up needing to. Each one of these four super categories got some play this time around. The Gravity of the Unknown theme was certainly a play in Liza's conversation with Ozen, where she's talking about how Rico is precious to her and how she's already sacrificed a lot for the Abyss, but the need to go back and the need to go to the bottom compels her onward. In some ways, even though she is on the surface at this moment, she has kind of in her heart already passed the point of no return as far as her orientation to the abyss goes. It's always gonna draw her back in. She's always going to want to see the bottom. She does not want to become disconnected from the abyss. She straight out says that. And Rico and motherhood are a threat to that. 
This absolutely plays into her decision to leave Rico to her own devices, however she's justifying that. Rico herself will find the Abyss's pull irresistible as well. I really said it was kind of a foregone conclusion that this would happen, and that's extremely consistent with this theme and all the ways we've seen it manifest itself over the series. That very same conversation is an example of finding your fate, because Liza is specifically leaving Rico to her own devices so that she can find her own way. Now, like I said, the allure of the Abyss probably makes this a foregone conclusion, but not necessarily. Rico certainly could have waited longer. She certainly didn't have to go immediately. I suppose there's even some alternate version of Maiden Abyss where Rico and Nato get together and one day start an orphanage together and they actually never go beyond the first lair. But Rico's choice about her own fate was decided really before the series even began. Before we've even met any of these characters, Rico has already known that she was going to chase after her mother. Reg simply accelerates this whole thing. He's not the reason she makes that decision. Figuring out exactly what that will look like for her, though, is really what we're finding out. And let's face it, Rico is doing a lot of things that don't look like she's the one in control of her own destiny. She's following after her mother's footsteps, literally down into the abyss. She was carrying her mother's white whistle. She's now carrying her mother's blaze reap weapon. She just finished being trained in some ways by the person who was her mother's trainer. I mean, she in all ways is following after Liza's footsteps, which doesn't seem much like Rico is actually choosing her fate. And now that we know that was a big thing to Liza, it's one of her goals, we kind of have this tension of, will Rico find her own way, or will she just try to replicate everything Liza has done in her efforts to find her? Now our ends versus means super category, we included in that the cost of progress or success, as well as the idea of being or becoming worthy of the abyss. And both of those ideas got some play this time. Obviously, Ozen's testing is kind of about them proving themselves worthy of the Abyss, proving themselves capable of surviving, ostensibly anyway. And it's only after this that she imparts all of the secret White Whistle knowledge to them that she thinks they need to go forward. We do find out that Maruk went through something very similar, so this clearly is something Ozen does. It's not just to annoy Reg or Rico or punish Rico for how she changed Liza's life. None of that. She actually does think of it as a kind of proving ground thing. The cost of progress success, that gets play where Liza is talking about the things she's given up in the pursuit of the Abyss for the sake of the Abyss. Her squad mates and her husband and some of the relics she's given up and ultimately motherhood. She gives that up as well. All of these are things she's willing to sacrifice for her goal of getting to the bottom of the abyss and her maybe secondary goal of allowing Rico to choose her own fate, assuming she ever does. Finally, World of Children gets um, shortchanged. It actually gets a little bit upended. So this is my final complaint about our survival training bit, is that it would ordinarily be a World of Children type situation. Two kids basically camping out in a slightly hostile environment, but it becomes very serious by virtue of them being children. We see it from their point of view and we watch them struggle and overcome and have setbacks and triumphs and all that. It's undermined though, because instead of seeing it from their point of view, we watch Ozen and this old creeper watch them and commentate on them and explain to us what's happening instead of letting us just experience that. This actually breaks the way the story has kind of been told to this point and is really my final complaint about this episode. That that's not at all the kind of story we've been in. If you're just gonna narrate over it, why even bother doing it? You're actually suddenly telling a different kind of story. 
Now I'm gonna remain optimistic. I'm going to assume that this breach was really about where they wanted the episode breaks to be. And this is not going to be a problem going forward. That once we leave the secret camp, it will once again be the Reg and Rico show and whoever else they meet and whatever other situation they find themselves in will go back to that world of children point of view that the story has been in the whole time. So what to watch for? In the immediate future, we have to assume we'll get to see what happens with the pickaxe. We'll get to see maybe a flashback of Ozen teaching them how it works and what it does. We need to watch and see if the character developments that we were robbed of this time, with Rico reacting to her reanimated corpse status, whatever we're going to call that, uh, comes home to roost. And if Reg's own misgivings or other type of personal conflict starts to come to the surface as well, we need to be watching for any other kind of missing or new props to come back into play pickaxe I just talked about, but we have the other things that have fallen out of the story, but we have to assume are going to come back. Like the necklace, like the missing notebook, like the star compass, maybe even the little egg-shaped relic if she's still carrying that around, as well as Liza's whistle. Now presumably she can't use it, none of them can use it, but as you can tell from that list, we kind of have an ensemble of props we're now carrying around that all could potentially have an impact on the narrative, an impact on the direction in which the story goes. So I say that to say that I think we want to watch to see if any more props come into view, or if we meet anyone who may be able to shine new light, new information on all the props we have to this point. And I think there's a good chance that something that we think we understand about them will turn out to be wrong. Um, I also think we need to be watching to see if they discover a way to rapidly speed up their descent, or if we get some new way to fulfill some of these goals that doesn't actually involve going all the way to the bottom. I'm pretty sure one of those two things has to happen, so I think we want to keep an eye out for which direction the series might be leaning, to see if maybe our missing characterization starts to take hold and that affects things. I think we need to prepare ourselves for the pace of the show to change pretty soon. Finally, I think we want to watch for any more clues to who may have penned the little letter that came up with Liza's notes. It's definitely very interesting to think that someone was with Liza and wanted to send a message to the surface, and that's the message they sent. Now, whatever else we know about the person, they must be using some archaic form of writing, but yet a writing that everyone can understand. So what does that mean? What kind of new clues are we going to find about who else might be down here besides White Whistles and, I guess, Reg? We need to start filling out our list of potential suspects for the writer of that letter, because I think that's pretty well connected to where the story eventually is going. Finally, into speculation. Um, if we don't meet the little bunny girl by the end of next episode, I don't know what's going on. I'm gonna start thinking I'm watching the wrong show, and that credit sequence belongs to something else entirely. Because <laughs> we'll be two-thirds plus through the show without meeting that character, which just really seems unlikely, but what do I know? Assuming that happens pretty soon, I'm guessing that they are also going to adventure together, and at some point, Rico is going to drop the Blaze Reap. You see a hint of that in the credit sequence. It may be that things go down exactly the way they do in that credit sequence. Maybe this giant spiky living pipe cleaner thing ambushes them, and they fall down a few levels, and they run into the bunny girl, and they go on a short adventure, and then drop the Blaze Reap. And maybe they go after it again. If that does happen, I feel like we have a little bit of a pattern here. Have the star compass, drop and lose it. Have the notebook, drop and lose it. Get the blaze reap, drop and lose it. Are we ever gonna find any of these things again? 
Anyway, I speculate we will absolutely run into one of these white whistles, maybe all three, but we will definitely run into the scoundrel, the out-and-out -out scoundrel, Bandaruda, or whatever. I mean, he's been in both little informational flashbacks. He does show up briefly in the credit sequence. Ozen outright commenting on him and his nature. I mean, all these things suggest that we're gonna meet this guy. He's gonna be an obstacle. He's going to do something to affect the course of the journey. Ozen thinks he's on the fifth level. That gives us a couple of episodes to actually run into him, I guess. But like I said, the pace of this is probably going to pick up soon, so who can even tell? From that same conversation with Ozen, I speculate that the mysterious ring of the seventh level will probably be referring to that mysterious city kind of thing we see in the credits. It's only there for a second or two, but to me, it looks like an enormous ringed city lying at the bottom of an immense chasm. I mean, I've already spun out some speculation about there potentially being some kind of lost civilization down here. And so maybe I'm reading too much into this and trying to make my own speculation match what she said, that at least all kind of makes sense in my mind. It's really the only ring-shaped thing that we have no other explanation for at this point. Lastly, this is speculation, kind of. There's an image during Liza and Ozen's final little scene in Ozen's memories, where we see Rico with the little glasses and the little elastic bands behind her ears. And it made me think of the fact that Rico's glasses have actually come up a bit. Never mind the whole conversation where she's being explained why she has to wear glasses, but during both the Crimson Splitjaw scene and the scene where Ozen kind of knocks her out, we see her glasses fall off. In fact, the camera slows down and follows them during the scene with Ozen. And all of this together makes me think we should be paying attention to the fact that there's something up with Rico's eyes by virtue of her being either born in the abyss or being reanimated. Maybe it's nothing, maybe she loses her glasses and eventually becomes crippled with headaches or something like that. But I think maybe it'll be more likely that her eyes work in some different way due to whatever happened to her. And they've simply been hiding that fact from us with the glasses. With the fact that she gets headache because she needs to wear these special glasses. And that was a way to just introduce us to the idea of the curse of the abyss and the fact that she was born there. All the while hiding from us that she'll eventually be revealed to have some special quality in the way she sees things due to being born in the abyss. Again, I could be way off, but the fact that they keep calling attention to the glasses situation makes me think, eh, there might be a little something to that. Alright then, that was episode 8. I know I complained a lot about this episode. I hope you understand why this bothered me. Um, I do optimistically believe this is a one-off and it was just the structure of the series made them do this. It may even be that they haven't undermined it the way that I think they have, and I'll definitely be happy to see that. But for now, I'm just a little bit wary about how they're gonna be telling the story from here on. I would love to be wrong. I would love to be shown to be being silly. So I will see you next time when we find out what happens in episode nine of Made in Abyss. Title music by Russell J. Crowe. Other music licensed from the artists at Audio Jungle. Script, performance, and editing by Theta. Theta is played by Redacted. Original video can be found at youtube.com slash C slash Nearly On Red. And a full list of credits is available at nearlyonred.com. Until next time, thanks for everything.